1: Hello and welcome back to The Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye and this week I have another awesome guest for you. I'm joined by author of the book, The Fuck It Diet, Caroline Duna. Now, I wanted to speak to Caroline so much and I explained in the interview that we had a really similar story in the fact that we both wanted to be actors in our previous life and so I was really intrigued about how drama school had played a role in her relationship with food and her body. And we also really kind of got into the depths of what disordered eating is and how it plays out. So I just wanna also give a heads up for this episode. If you find talk of disordered eating, we mentioned a few numbers in this episode. and you find that that may be triggering for you, I highly recommend potentially skipping this episode. I completely appreciate it if you need to do that. Um, but this is just a warning to say we will be discussing disordered eating, um, but ultimately we're going to be discussing how uh, Caroline, uh, through her work, um, through her personal journey, kind of helped heal from that and how she kind of put that into place in her book The Fuck It Diet. So um, I really hope you enjoyed this one. We had a long conversation so I'm going to try and wrap this up quickly because this is a long one but I think we got through so much good stuff. So um, if you do enjoy this one do let us know at trainhappypodcast and use the hashtag trainhappypodcast and uh, yeah here's Caroline. So today I am so excited to be joined by Caroline Duna. She is author of The Fuck It Diet and is, I think, probably quite similar to me in some ways. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you, Caroline. How are you doing?
0: (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm good. It's spring. I just took my dog for a walk right before we hopped on this call, just so she wasn't as rambunctious, though I can make no promises. She will probably- Oh no, she can. Right if you don't follow Caroline on Instagram, she has the cutest- you have a... <laughs> Do you
1: have a Bernadoodle? She's
0: a Bernadoodle. It's a dream dog. Dream She's dog. She's really, really cute. She's a lot. Like she She really is a ball of energy. And the reason that I got a Bernadoodle is because I was led to believe that Bernies were like nice and chill. She's oh, really. Chill. <laughs> I mean- it's all relative right there are people who have told me that she's like oh she's so chill for a puppy and i'm like you have you you're not at home with me yeah like 24 7. but it is so it is like a day when the air it's really windy and the air is filled with pollen so much that it looked like there was like a a yellow green cast to the air and my eyes
1: (laughs) do you suffer with hay fever
0: hurt so much I mean, I do. I definitely do a little bit. I sneeze. I feel like a little foggy, but I think that even if I didn't have allergy, like pollen allergies, it's just, it's like in my eyes right now. It's like, oh. it's like in my eyes in my brain. So if I'm blinking a lot, okay. okay. That's why. That's why. <laughs> I have my, I have my eye drops here in case I need them.
1: <laughs> awesome. So I wanted to talk to you because obviously, like I mentioned, you've written a book, The Fuck It Diet, but in a previous life, you were an actress and I attempted to be, I never quite made it, but um, I went to drama school and did musical theatre is what I um, wanted to do. And when I graduated, during drama school is when I became quite disordered with food and exercise. Mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise. If anyone's ever been to drama school, they're not. Uh Um, (laughs) I'm really intrigued to know about yeah, how you came to, you know, how you had developed your relationship with food, maybe that was partly impacted, I don't know, by your experiences um, in acting and um, how you came through the fucker diet.
0: It was definitely a huge piece of my disordered eating. Uh, and it's really, so I was also diagnosed with PCOS in high school which is a hormonal disorder that they often blame on food and carbs and weight. And so I was told at like 14, 15 to diet, to not gain weight because I, I was thin, but to me I was going through puberty. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel thin anymore, but I was thin doctors still were, you know, they just made it all about weight, even though that was honestly the last thing that I should have been thinking about. We know that. Um, and so I was really scared about health. So there was this orthorexic part of my brain that felt really justified. It felt like a fact, you know, that I have health problems. I have to diet. I can't do what other people do. I can't have fun. Like I had this very dramatic, like (laughs) this is just like, but I'm going to overcome this by being perfect with my diet, you know, so that the stakes felt really, really high already. And then at the same time, I I was in high school and I did a lot of acting and I was a singer and I was good enough that I was making a decision. You know, I was like making a decision. Am I really going to go into this? And the pressure of if I can't look right, if I can't lose weight and keep it off, because of course, once I started dieting for my health, again, there's so many air quotes, so many air quotes here, dieting (laughs) for my health. I start my binge eating became worse and worse and worse. So I was losing weight for a couple months and then gaining it all back and more and then losing it again. So I was really, really fluctuating with my weight enough so that people noticed. I noticed my bras noticed. I like that. I like gain and lose so much weight in my boobs. And it was like, that's where I can really, really tell. But people will compliment me so much when I lost weight that I felt. Like I was worthy to play these roles that I was getting cast as. Um, And I was doing some like semi-professional or no, not even semi-professional stuff in Philadelphia. My family's from outside Philadelphia um, in high school. And when I was thin, I I really believed like, okay, I I am, this is right. Like I, I, you know, I am right for this part. And when I wasn't, I was like, oh, nobody look at me. So, um, because of the dieting and then the binging and the losing weight and gaining weight, I felt like I didn't know whether I could be an actor because there were so many eyes on me. And because I felt like I had to look a certain way to play, you know, you know, and that's, that's the way that our, our culture is. And it's so weird because it's, it actually perpetuates it, you know, Actors feel like they have to be thin in order to get roles, but then people who watch movies or TV shows or theater think that they have to be thin because the actors are thin, and so it just, like, feeds itself, and so that's, that's a whole other thing, but I, yes, then, basically, I was extremely, extremely disordered my senior year of high school, very, very thin, got into NYU And I was like, which is "Um, an
1: incredible school, by the way, that is an incredible school.
0: And it was so, I mean, it was so exciting. It's what I wanted. And I, and I had this, it was so weird because my disordered eating, it just, in every way, it just, it felt so justified. It felt Mm. so important. And I had no idea it was disordered, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, But then of course, once I get to school, there's the backlash from the super disordered because I was... You know, I believe that my problem was binge eating and a food addiction and emotional eating. So I, all of my dieting was an attempt to heal that, not realizing how much, again, the dieting was perpetuating. But yeah, being in in drama school with disordered eating, gaining weight, losing weight, going on diets you know, my body pushing me off my diets. And of course, by then it was getting worse and worse and worse because I'd already been doing it for four, five years. That was all I thought about. Mm. All I thought about, that was the only thing that mattered to me during school. In my head, I, I kept thinking if I could just look right, if I could just heal this food addiction and become permanently thin, I, I, I will have no problems. I will, I will not be nervous. I won't be nervous on auditions anymore because I'll know that I, like it was, it was everything was wrapped up in if I can just lose weight and everything will be okay.
1: And what was the culture like at your school? Was it very much, um, cause I know we had conversations. We'd have like, um, agents come in and cast agents come in and say, if you're a certain size, you need to be the next size down. And the, you know, we had teachers tell us like, we can see your cellulite girls and all this kind of stuff. And I, my school was actually fairly, um, compared to other places. Like they didn't weigh us. They Mm -hmm. generally were pretty, Mm -hmm. like were not so heavy on the diet culture. And, but there are schools in the UK that have weekly weigh-ins and all this kind of stuff. Um, we didn't have that. And yet there was this unconscious message. It was very like No one said it, but we all knew that we had to look the part. And my friend, who's a dancer, always says like, her body was her CV, and that's what it felt like. Because you, in acting, for people who are listening, you kind of you want a everyone wants the lead roles, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, Mm -hmm. um, you have to be a small size to be a lead role, and then you're a quote character actress Mm -hmm. if you're basic if you're plus size, and. You can't, you're not allowed to be in between. There was yeah. a girl at my school who was in between and it was like, right, you need to make a decision. You're either going to be thin or you're going to be plus size. These were the conversations that I had. Two fit casting brackets?
0: Yes, yes. It's so strange because, okay, so my my program was very similar to yours in that I, I sensed that, the, because I was always thinking about weight. So I was always uh, like waiting for someone to say something to be about my weight because I knew that my voice and my type was sweet, ingenue, and that when I was um, the higher end of my weight, that I, quote-unquote, didn't look like my voice. I knew it, and I was just waiting for someone to say it to me because I it was unspoken, mm. you know, and nobody ever did, though I knew, I knew until until it was the last year and that was the agent showcase time and the time that we had all these like master classes with agents when it was a little bit more like my teacher would say, Oh, that shirt is, is, um, is great. Like it was all about like, how do we, and, and she actually was plus size herself, but she was trying to, and you know, but that was her type. Mm. She was, she was trying to help us. And she, I loved her, but it was still what we were doing. Yeah. Was you ha- had to
1: put people into boxes, right? Exactly. It's like you're trying to, fit all these people into boxes and humans don't fit into boxes. As exactly, exactly. And it's exactly. just, it's very messed up.
0: It's so strange. And so I felt the same way that m- I felt like my school, we did not have weigh-ins. I felt like they were being careful. I mm. actually felt like they were, they probably had some bad experiences or, or really bad cases of eating disorders. or they I think that it was sort of like in the culture of the teachers to try and be sensitive to that, but inherently because of what we were doing and how many eyes were on us and how we knew that eventually if we were going to stay doing they knew that they were just trying to teach us acting, whatever, vocal performance. But as it went on, it was going to become more and more and more about who are you are you, are you mm. able to be, you know, put in a box type cat? Yeah, like
1: how can we market you? And I also, I'm probably projecting here for myself, but I, I kind of turned to food and exercise particularly as a kind of means to make myself kind of stand out from the rest. And at that time, I was very focused on being the fit one. Mm. So I wasn't a very good dancer, but I could hold stuff like, you know get me in the get my leg up and I'll hold it there I might not oh, be yeah. flexible but that was my fit thi- you know that was nice. my way of coping Okay. and I I kind of we'll, t- we'll touch on this later but it was very much my identity of like oh she's the fit one and um I wondered if you found that food and having the identity as maybe a healthy one or like I don't know did people used to come to you for like what should I be eating? What should I be doing? Because that was certainly my position. Like people, I was gluten-free and, right, every, you know, I was like not eating, I was eating clean and I would tell people how to eat clean and all this kind of crap, to be honest. That was part of my way of coping with that pressured time. Like, do you oh, yeah. feel that that was part of that that it's, a, it's an intense growing up period. Cause I presume you're going from like 18 to 21 or right. maybe.
0: Yes. And it's yes.
1: kind of like this transitional time in your life anyway. And so was that food and body stuff a way of coping? Do you think?
0: It de- absolutely. It definitely was in so many ways. It was a coping mechanism for me compared to how you were the one that people would go to for health advice or for, I think There were times when I did lose a lot of weight that people would say, what did you do? Like, you know, other people, even Mm -hmm. in my program. But I had a lot of insecurity over the fact that I was clearly always going on diets and clearly always going on extreme diets and that it didn't stick. And also Mm -hmm. I had really bad skin. (laughs) When I was a freshman at NYU, I became a raw vegan that year, which I do not recommend at all, (laughs) (laughs) but I was like, that was, I was so extreme and it was, that was absolutely a coping mechanism. It was extreme because I was able to just focus so much energy on it. Um, and the promise of raw veganism is that it will heal you, from the inside out, on a cellular level, everything will heal. You will glow. There's like so much talk about, like, get the glow, like, mm. you know, living food. And my skin has never been so bad, never been so bad as when I was raw vegan. And I don't know if it's related or if it was extreme stress at the time or what. But I was so mortified that I was the girl who was obsessed with eating healthy food. But I, I, to me, I looked so unhealthy. I was so embarrassed by that um and scared by it because i was like oh no this is my health this is my health problem um and so i was just so i was very very insecure about that and so then it was like i have to i have to do better i have to be you know mm-hmm. but there was so i was so insecure I, I just like i picked myself apart so much and i thought that that was what i you know i thought that if i didn't do that i would never improve and then i would never you know, succeed in my career. And I would also never be healthy. And I, you know, that just the the stakes just felt so high and I let them stay there. And I honestly think that if anybody had told me what I would want to tell myself, if I could go back and speak to myself and shake myself, I don't think that I would have listened. I really don't. Yeah. I had to, again, before we started recording, we were talking about how we, we need to come to things on our own. I really think it took the time that it took for me to see, Oh, this is not working. No matter what I try, it keep the same cycle. Just keeps on happening over and over and over again.
1: So, can we talk about some of the things you tried? Because um, I, I personally was kind of like, I'm clean eating and I'm gluten free because of my gut issues. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, right. <laughs> but, and I would never. I would kind of say I was on a diet and I've macro counted and did all of that stuff, but. I found it interesting that you were like, no, I'm on diets because I wouldn't necessarily label what I was doing a diet. It was my healthy lifestyle. I'm just finally having this healthy lifestyle. So I just wondered what kind of things you tried and how you justified them to yourself.
0: Yes, it's a journey. And, And I eventually did the same thing. Like there were years when I was like, well, I'm not on a diet anymore. I'm not a dieter anymore, but it was all, it was still clean eating. Like Yeah.
1: But side note to that, I used to think if I literally wasn't putting food in my, fit, um, my fitness pal and counting stuff that I was an intuitive eater. Right. And I did not understand the differentiation. I thought intuitive eaters were people just didn't track their food. Yes. Because tracking was so normalized by right. what I saw that not tracking was intuitive eating. Right. But it's not.
0: It's not. It's not. <laughs> it is not inherently <laughs> intuitive eating. So the first diet that I went on when I was fourteen was the Atkins diet, which okay. is really just keto with aspartame. <laughs> Um, so that was like, that was the big craze. And it was 2002 and Atkins, it was like the low carb revolution, right? Like the eighties and nineties had been low fat and the entire world was pivoting to, Oh no, we had it wrong. We had it wrong, which is why we're all still not healthy and thin. It's really about low carb. And because it was like the fad diet du jour, of course I was 14. I believed it. I was like, this is truth. You know, this is Mm. how we should all be eating. This is how I should be eating. And it was also around the time that I was diagnosed with PCOS, which is associated with insulin resistance. So there was a lot of, it it felt like a good idea to stop eating carbs completely. So I I did for a couple months and I lost a lot of weight and I assumed I figured it out. This is amazing. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life and my life is going to be great. <laughs> and of course, within a couple months, I was I always would start binging on the allowed foods, like from the allowed food list or for the from the sometimes list, and then it would eventually just be like then I would just like lose control. And it wasn't there was nothing casual about me losing control. I felt like I was ruining my life. Like it felt I did not want to be binging. I did not want to be going off the diet, but I I literally couldn't help it, which is why I assumed that that was my big problem. That my big problem was like, I cannot control myself around food. I'm a food addict. Mm -hmm. So, of course, another diet, you know, another diet pops up, and it's the South Beach diet, which is very similar to the Atkins diet. But in my brain, I thought, oh, maybe the problem is that I didn't find the right diet. And if I can eat the right diet, if I can do, you know, they're all written by these doctors. So they must know something about, you know, my, like I also had this belief that if I could, because I had hormonal issues, right. Um, That if I could heal my hormones by eating the right diet, that my food cravings would go away. Okay. I thought that it was all connected. So in my head, I was just on this journey to like heal something inside of me that healed everything else and that healed my relationship with food. So in my head, I was like, well, one day it'll get easier than this. Like one day it'll just, I'll either be so used to it or I'll, I'll have healed like the internal problem and, and I'll just be able to relax a little bit. One day I'll be able to relax. Right. So of course the same thing happened with that. I lost, I lost a lot of weight for like half a happy year. Everybody complimented me. All my school, like school friends and everything, they were like, what are you doing? I want to do it. And then it backfired again, binging on the allowed foods and then just totally falling off the rails. And then throughout high school, I did a lot. I, I would like keep trying to put myself, I think, on the South Beach diet over and over and over again. Um, and I just remember it being so stress. I mean, so stressful. Like, why, can't, why is this working as well? Like, why am I not able to stick to this as well? What's, and it did, it, like, the more I would put myself on diets, the harder it was. And the, the, less, it, the less quickly it worked and less quickly I would lose weight. Um, and so I would go through periods of, you know, I'm just going to actually just count calories and I'm going to, and I had the, you know, I had the number 1800 in my head. Like if I went over 1800, I was really blowing it. And I was like, I didn't understand what was wrong with myself. And I did all of the time. I have, I still have a notebook that I read and I read because it's funny because I'm so dramatic in it and I'm, but I'm writing notes to myself. Like, what is wrong with you? Like, like, it's just like, it's so sad. And I had the little, I had like, it was this very, um, It was so much of a coping mechanism. It was like such a ritual to like have the things and I write it out and I would add it all up and I would have the number and then I would go back downstairs and I would blow it and I'd be like, what? So it was calorie counting and that, I couldn't do that either. Um, And then there were other smaller diets. Like there was a diet called the Rosedale diet. That was also a low low carb diet, but it was like about certain fats. And my mom and I tried this diet called the Way down diet. That's like very culty. It was all about- God and having God, uh, help you like basically like praying to not eat too much. It was so messed up. Um, so that was like bringing in this like other, it was already this very dogmatic way that I was looking at diets, but then bringing in like spirituality, like if you're spiritual, you wouldn't be overeating. But so that didn't work either, obviously. Um, and then I'm trying to think. And then I think my senior year when I was extremely, extremely disordered and very, Good at not eating a lot of food, I was on something called the insulin resistance diet, which was you measured everything and it had to be a certain ratio of carbs to protein. And you were allowed to eat every two to three hours, but it had to be a very certain amount of carbs to protein. And I did that for maybe like, you know, nine months. And I was obsessive about it. And I was sure that I was healed. I was like, wow. I finally figured I could eat whatever I want. You know, I believe yeah. that. Uh, but it just has to be the certain way. And I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And of course, eventually I started doing the exact same thing and it, I just started binging. And then raw veganism in first year of college. And then I had read the intuitive eating book and I- Which
1: is by Evelyn and Annalise Resch. Yeah.
0: Yes. And I remember when I read it, I knew, in, like, as I was reading it, 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 it totally uh, was mind-blowing to me. And I knew as I was reading it, I need this. Like, I need this. This is describing me. And I had no idea until I read that book that there was anything wrong with dieting, that there was anything connected between binge eating and dieting, that there was any other way to exist than dieting. So it truly blew my mind. And I knew as I was reading it that I needed it. But it's so crazy how quickly I twisted it into a diet. So uh, interesting. So, I mean, so quickly. And actually, timeline-wise, I read that before I became a raw vegan. So I had, two, like, two weeks of saying, I'm going to be an intuitive eater. I sat my mom down, and I said, Mom, I know that we're we – we believe I'm a food addict and we, cause you know, it was all about health, right? It was like, yeah. why? And I was binging in secret. I mean, I truly felt like a food addict and that's what I believed. And that's what my mom believed too. Cause she was like, I don't understand like what's going on with you. Um, sat her down and I said, I read this book and I really think that I need to, to do it. And she said, okay, uh, whatever you need to do. I am um, becoming a vegan though, because I was just... Diagnosed with cancer. <laughs> so I sat her down to say, I think I have an eating disorder or some sort of disordered eating, and I'm going to become an intuitive eater. And she was like, Great, okay. I just remember her being like so tired of being like, Whatever you need. And then she told me that she had been diagnosed with cancer. And of course, because we lived in this like wellness, we had this like wellness, we can heal ourselves with food perspective in my house. She was trying, she did chemotherapy. She's in remission now. She's That's fine. Amazing. But her first attempt, was reading all the alternative literature on. She read the book The China Study, which I don't want to endorse because I don't. You know, I, I read it when I I read it. But basically, the next day I read that book and I was like, Oh, I'm going to become vegetarian. So so quickly I and in my head I was like, But I'm going to do it intuitively, right? Like that was like then always in the back of my mind for the next six years until. So that was when I was 18 and the fuck a diet epiphany that I had that, that I now, you know, the actual, my actual healing, my relationship with food didn't happen until I was 24. So all of that time in between, I was either on a diet telling myself I was doing it intuitively, whatever that means, or I was not on a diet telling myself I was eating intuitively, even though what I was really doing was micromanaging everything I ate and judging everything I ate and trying to eat the smallest amount possible. So then for a very long time, I was just sort of doing the hunger fullness diet Mm. and thinking I had healed my relationship to food.
1: I found it really interesting how you said um, about allowing yourselves to eat as much of your allowed foods as possible. Because I so relate to that and I haven't experienced binge eating disorder, but I have experienced um not necessarily a formal binge, but that ability of like overeating foods that are allowed and eating huge portions because they that was clean and good and healthy and I could eat unlimited amounts of um whatever I wanted, I don't know. Um mm-hmm. and I'm I used to like get myself so full, so full to the point of discomfort, yeah, um, but it was fine because it was chickpea cookie dough that was one of my right. favorites right um because it was it was clean, it was allowed, it was healthy um, and I've kind of now you know going through the intuitive easing process and having a similar epiphany <laughs>
0: like, mm-hmm.
1: oh, wait um. I can eat everything and I don't need to eat everything in excess because A, I'm allowed or it's the last time I'm going to get to eat this food. Yes. And I think that kind of seesaw of like, it's either eating everything I'm not allowed to eat or eating everything I can eat just because I'm hungry.
0: Yes. Yes. And, and, so- and the belief that I shouldn't be, like, I, I always had this belief that my hunger was a problem like that I needed to heal my hunger. That was this weird thing. And I think honestly it was because of the PCOS diagnosis that I was so afraid of how much I craved food. I thought that it was a sign of insulin resistance or you know, pre-diabetes or my whacked out hormones. And that if, it was this weird thing where like my hunger is the thing that's perpetuating my illness, any, by the way, I don't believe any of this anymore, but this was sort of just like this. I, I, I just took this as truth. My hunger is fueling my illness because I'm eating food and I'm eating too much food and therefore I'm staying unhealthy, but because I'm unhealthy, that's actually why I have these cravings. So it was this weird thing that I was like, my hunger is the problem. If I could just heal my hunger with the perfect diet, which I, there are so many diets that Promise to heal your cravings,
1: and I feel like you tried a a good lot of them.
0: I did. I mean, I'm like, I really did. I was
1: actually surprised that you did quite so many. So many. And am I right in saying that you were also like really paleo at one point as well?
0: Okay, so paleo was my last diet before the fuck it diet. It actually, what it was like, a, you know, I thought I was being an intuitive eater for five or six years, and then. I was reading all of these people, you know, I still had, like, I have a lot of cycle, but like, I didn't, I actually didn't get my period for a really, really long time. I blamed that on PCOS, but how much was <laughs> all did the you diets and the under eating?
1: And did you find that when you started eating that your mm-hmm. period yes, came back?
0: It came back. Mm-hmm. It's still not regular. I still have months of like lower hormones and like, a, like not completely regular cycling, but it's, I have a period, like I have a period now that like exists Mm -hmm. because I eat (laughs) Um, consistently. Um, but I was reading all of these. I don't even know. I kind of, I mean, it's everywhere. Uh, Me saying, I don't know where I got it. I was always online, always reading blogs. And I was hearing that paleo heals your hormones. And I was like, I haven't done that one. What if that is the answer? What if I become pale? What if I am sensitive to whatever the things that pale, you know, grains, dairy, whatever the things that are bad on paleo? And what if this really does heal me? And so I said to myself, okay, I'm going to try this, but I'm going to try it casually. I'm not going to go crazy. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to like, I'm, I'm only going to try it for a month. Just see, just see how I feel. And within three days, I remember I was like, and I even said like, I'm not even going to go super low carb. I'm going to like have like sweet potatoes and stuff within three days. First of all, within three days, my, my uh, whole digestive system was totally messed up. And I have never had so much gas in my entire life, which is like the opposite of what you would think and what you're told. So of course I, I went to, oh, I'm not like, I need to like expedite this process and like do it more extreme. So within three days, I was no carbs and eating like, so pristinely paleo and on the message boards all day long. And that was, I think that was like early fall. And it was the beginning of January that I binged on all these paleo treats. And it was my birthday. It was my 24th birthday. And I, I had I ha, I truly had an epiphany of, oh my God, I have been doing this. I've been doing this exact same thing over and over and over and over again. And I had the sense, you know, thanks to the intuitive eating book, I had enough of a sense that dieting backfires, but I just didn't understand that I had sort of just been staying in that. And then going back on the paleo diet, I was seeing it clear as day. And also, there's a huge prompt paleo promises that it will heal you of your cravings. That is like one of the big promises. You are not eating the right foods. That is why you have all these cravings. And if you just eat the right diet, you will only crave the right foods. And I was like, that's not, it hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. It hasn't worked. And so I had a realization in that moment that I, I really, if I did not radically stop the cycle that I was in with dieting, that I was going to keep doing this forever. So it was very clear to me in that moment, I, I want to really like hardcore, stop and that my I knew in my head that the problem with the way that I was applying intuitive eating was that I I believed it was that the purpose was to eat the smallest amount possible. That was and it does not say that in the book. It doesn't say nah. that anywhere in the book, but I read it and assumed that if I was eating intuitively I wouldn't be eating that much and that if I was eating intuitively I would be thin and that everyone would be thin. I, I believed that. Um, which is why I needed so much of the health at every size piece. I I needed that to, to validate and to encourage and support me to trust my body and to not try and micromanage it. But before I read health at every size, in that moment, on that day, on my birthday, I had a realization that my obsession with my weight and my constant attempts to eat the smallest amount possible Even being what I thought was intuitive and be the smallest I could be was the reason that I had never healed my relationship with food. I knew it. I was, and in that moment, I knew that I had to let myself gain weight, whatever, whatever that was and, and quit acting. And I only quit temporarily. I went back to it and I've since quit a couple of of times since then. But I knew if I'm going to do this and I'm going to really let my body do what it needs to do and I'm really going to be kind to myself and I'm really going to um, sort of lay off, like lay off myself, I cannot be getting dressed and going to auditions. There's just no way. There's no way.
1: Was that really triggering for you?
0: Oh, Yes, even get even seeing the email today of you saying it's going to be audio and video. I was like, oh, I have to learn how to do my hair. <laughs> like, I really like there, and this is totally fine. <laughs> we're, we're fine. <laughs> but I really, it's almost like a little bit of PTSD from auditioning. Like I am so hypercritical of the way that I think that people are going to perceive me because you have to be when you're. I mean, you're not. It doesn't really help your acting to to like be thinking about the way you look, but you know, walking into auditions, you know that they are measuring everything about the way you yeah. look and whether-
1: You can fit the costumes. Exactly. Can you, can you fit the costumes? Are you the right height proportion to the- Exactly. The, the guy.
0: Exactly. And the only callbacks for Broadway that I ever got, and I did get some callbacks for Broadway, <laughs> were for understudies. And when you're an understudy, that's even more the case. You have to fit that girl's costume. And in my case, I was like, none of these people have boobs as big as mine. I'm not going to fit into any of their costumes. Like, but that was a real thing that I really thought about that, that was real life. I wasn't making it up, you
1: know? No. No, no, no.
0: So the hyper, hyper, hyper critical nature of auditioning. I just knew. And I do think that there are some people who are a little bit calmer about it. Like I was extremely, extremely critical. I could not separate the two things. Um, But yeah, that was a huge thing for me. And I, I knew, thank God I knew because it would have taken so much longer if I had taken longer to like actually, but to actually let myself stop acting. But I, I just knew, I knew in that moment, like I need a serious, a serious change.
1: Yeah, like an opportunity to kind of take take a step back to get a new perspective. Um, and I want to I wanna go into what the, the fuck it diet is and we're going to kind of break it down. But mm-hmm. I just want to touch on a few things that we've already mentioned in terms of like your relationship with food before we truly get into that. I want to know your thoughts on, you know, with your fuck it diet lens on now, what is your perspective on food addiction and sugar addiction? Because I think... I speak to a lot of people, I've had personal training clients, I have friends who have said I'm addicted to sugar, Mm -hmm. and you know, I think people truly feel that they are out of control when they, you know, if they've got a bar of chocolate, they have to eat the whole thing, they couldn't just have a few slices, and I kind of used to feel like that before, anyway, I used to feel like, who are these weirdos who could like eat something and leave it, who all right. are those people? I, oh, I never was, sure those,
0: I was people. sure those people were lying. I was, yeah. I was like, nobody forgets. To. Nobody, no. nobody. Oh, I've forgotten
1: to eat. Yeah. Who,
0: I was like, you're lying. Forgets? We all know you're lying. Yeah. And now I'm the person that's like, oh, I forgot to eat lunch. And it's like three. And I'm like, I have to, like, I, well, to answer your question, I was sure, positive that I was a food addict and a sugar addict positive. I had no control unless I was in my like diet hypervigilance, which I had, and it was like a high, you know, um, unless I was in that like honeymoon phase of the diet, I had no control around food and around sugar. I was, I was sure of it. Um, but what I have found personally and what other people uh, readers have told me, and then also thankfully the science also does support this that everyone think well except for the people who actually have healed their relationship with food or always had a good relationship with food everyone feels like a sugar addict because <clears throat> when we are restricting food our body we are wired to crave the thing that is going to give us energy the quickest so we are we are literally wired to be sugar addicts especially when we are restricted and this, there's this study that was studying rats and sugar addiction, and it seems to prove prove that there is such a thing as sugar addiction. But when you really look at the study, they were they were restricted, they were starved beforehand. So it is actually the piece of restriction and dieting and restricting sugar and even the mental restriction of sugar, because that and that actually becomes its own thing. Mental restriction, especially if you've been on lots of diets, like has a kind of has a life of its own it is the restricting of food and of sugar that makes us feel so addicted to it.
1: And the demonizing, as you've said, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's, there's good and bad sugar and I'm Mm -hmm. not allowed any of the bad sugar. Mm -hmm. I'm only allowed fruit, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, That, yeah, means that when, you know, we have that window. I mean, when I was kind of in my diet phase, a lot of it was around cheat days. Mm
0: -hmm. And I
1: think they really, um, a great example of that kind of thinking you're thinking you're addicted to sugar or you're whatever because on those cheat days you Mm
0: -hmm. couldn't help
1: yourself and you'd eat all the the you know the quote naughty stuff that you weren't allowed to eat during the week and you Mm -hmm. could just blow out and just Mm -hmm. you know eat the whole pack of cookies eat the you know whatever you could throughout the whole day um because that was not allowed Monday to Friday, or even on Sunday, but Saturday, you're allowed to let loose. And um, whether it was like a formal binge in the context of binge eating disorder, because that has its own kind of, um, that's different. I I think it's Mm -hmm. important to differentiate between that, but there is this thing where we like have these urges of like, I must just, you know, eat the whole tub of ice cream. Like I would never ever, I, I used to sit and eat a tub of ice cream, easy peasy. Because it was such a treat for me, and I really put and it that on was a on pedestal. Cheat days? Yeah, oh, yeah, and like even as I was like That's healing good... my relationship with food. Oh yeah. I didn't have cheat days, but I, as I was healing my relationship with food, I'd be like, okay, well, I'm allowed that thing. But because right. I wasn't allowed, so Ben and Jerry's, like, because I wasn't allowed Ben and Jerry's every day.
0: <laughs> right.
1: But like on a Friday night,
0: uh-huh. it
1: was cool to have a bit Ben and Jerry's because it's Friday night. Right. So I had to eat the whole thing. And, you know, my boyfriend would be, like, taking it out of my hands. <laughs> and now right. um, I eat enough to satisfy mm-hmm. me. And sometimes mm-hmm. that might be the whole tub. Sometimes mm-hmm. it might be two scoops. But right. I'm allowed to right. eat that every day. The fact... I have Ben & Jerry's in my freezer. And it's been there for months. And I right. haven't been inclined to go eat it once because it's there. I'm allowed it whenever I want. And that has been mind-blowing for me.
0: That And when that starts to happen for people who are learning to eat intuitively or going on the fuck a diet when they have that moment that they realize i always love hearing from people when they're like i just realized that i have had cookies in my cabinet that i would have eaten in a second you know two years ago or a year ago and i forgot that they were there like that is so exciting because it's proof that we can calm down around food, that it is really that cycle that we're in, that binge-repent cycle that makes us feel so out of control around food. And you were talking about the cheat days, and I really do, I feel like there's a psychological aspect to it, just the psychological denial, the forbiddenness of it that makes us feel out of control around it. And then there's also the biological piece that we are literally wired to be obsessed with food and extra hungry when we are constantly putting ourselves on diets. Can we there, talk
1: about the Minnesota starvation um, yes. study? Because you wrote about, I mean, I have obviously done a lot of my research, read probably similar books to you, listened to all the stuff. Mm-hmm. But the way you wrote about that study, I, I found it the most informative. So I would love to hear, um, yeah, your take on the Minnesota starvation
0: mm-hmm. study. So the Minnesota starvation experiment was done in during World, world War II in... Uh, Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) But it was with conscientious objectors who did not want to fight. But all of these men signed up to help a study on rehabilitating starvation. So the point, the purpose of the study was to learn how to best refeed people who had been starved. But in order to do that, they first had to starve these men for, it was, I believe the starvation period was six months. Um, and there was a, there was like the control period in the beginning where they had them sort of eat normally and eating normally was about 3,200 calories, which when I read that, I was like, see, what are we, what is this? What is this 1200 calorie bullshit? So that was normal. That was like their normal diet. And these were all, you know, thin muscular, you know, normally muscular fit men who walked, you know, walked a lot, they had them walk a lot, and they were eating their normal diet for three months. And then for six months, they cut the diet, they cut the amount of calories in half. So they were eating around 1600 calories, which was meant to be semi starvation, which just really honestly is mind blowing when you think about how that is A very normal amount of calories that is recommended on diets for men and for women these days. And the fact that I would beat myself up for not being able to eat that amount of food, like I was, that was my goal. And to me, in my brain, when I was dieting, that was good, that was healthy, that was like the amount of food that I was supposed to be eating the perfect amount, the perfect amount of food. Mm. But these men who had no opportunity to cheat, so they really were, and they were eating a vegetarian diet. It was a bl- it was a bland diet, but there were there were beans and vegetables and dairy and you know some um, grains. So there was protein and there was fat and there was there were vegetables. There there are always people who are like, yeah, but what were they eating? And it's like that's not the really not the point. They became emaciated, obsessed, obsessed with food. Um, volatile uh one had to go to the psychiatric ward because he had um he had dream, like dreams of cannibalism and was like having these outbursts and they refed him and he went completely back to normal and they all started to become so they became really obsessed with food um didn
1: 't they i had that they like pictures from cookbooks and they'd like pin them on the wall yes they would Um, they would
0: like they would just pour over these cookbooks and and books about food and they would like savor their food in a way that they never ever ever they would pour over it like it was like i don't know i think the thing that i think was so interesting is that they used they these were these men who really cared about pacifism and they had these strong beliefs and they would, you know, talk about women or what, you know, they would, they lost all, like they did not care about dating. They didn't care about sex. They didn't care about politics. They cared about food. That's all they cared about. And they were eating 1600 calories a day. Like they weren't actually not eating anything.
1: And didn't um, three of them become chefs? Like they became so obsessed with food that they wanted to be chefs.
0: Yes. They became chefs. And, and so the, the crazy thing is that that, that lingering obsession with food stayed with a lot of them for the rest of their lives, which I honestly haven't found. I know we also want to talk about like, what it, is being a foodie? Like how much of that is being driven by being, obs- mm-hmm. you know, being obsessed with food or putting yourself on diets. I personally never want to think about food again, but, um, but I think the other really interesting thing is that in order, so when they finally got to the Part that they were actually trying to study. I think really truly they were shocked by the results of the semi starvation. I don't think that they realized the mental shift that would happen in these men. Um, and they were very irritable. And they also had this, they actually developed a body dysmorphia just from the starvation itself, which is very interesting to me. And I don't know that we fully understand what's going on there and why, like what, what even is the biological purpose for the fact that they didn't think that they were as skeletal as they were. Um, but to refeed the first attempt was just to, they assumed that just let's up calories just a little bit because they didn't want to overload them and they didn't know the best way to refeed them. And even, even the people who like went back to their normal amount of calories, they didn't really improve. They were still really skeletal. They were still obsessed with food. They were still in that sort of starved state. And the only thing that actually got them out of that starvation state was like exponential amount of calories, like just Mm -hmm. allowing themselves to feed themselves as much as they wanted. Sometimes it was like, I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of calories. And I'm, it was different every day. And it wasn't something that it wasn't like, oh, this is exactly what they need. It was like, they just need a lot of food. Yeah. Like they just need to eat as much as they're hungry for. And the other interesting thing is that a lot of them talked about during that period, first of all, they talked about how their mental health and anxiety and depression actually became worse during that time. There was just like- chemical- During the
1: starvation or during the refeed?
0: During the refeed, which is- unfortunate, but also important information for people who are starting this process themselves. Maybe they, maybe they don't have an eating disorder and so they're not getting help and they're just trying to do it themselves and they're, they're, you know, they're feeling worse. They're feeling mm. more anxious. They're feeling more depressed. It's helpful to know that that is a part of the process and that we all deserve mental health support. And mm-hmm. we probably really, really need it, especially if we're trying to do something as big as healing your relationship with food and body but that that was like a chemical thing that was happening to them. And, um, and that there was this sensation of hunger that they could not get rid of for a long time during that, during that refeeding period. Even if they were stuffed to the brim with food, they still had this like, am I still hungry? Which I have heard a lot of people talk about, especially in the first couple months after restricting, trying to eat more food. There's this confusion of like, I don't know. Like I'm trying to follow my hunger and I've just eaten all this food, but I still feel hungry. I don't know if that's okay. And the answer is, it's just going to feel so weird for such a long time. Yeah. And there's no big right or wrong, especially in, in those beginning periods, except you deserve to eat a lot of food. And there's a reason why your body is craving so much food.
1: And I always talk about, like, in so many contexts, but even in this context, like that pendulum swing. Like, when it's been that so far left, it Mm -hmm. has to go hard right. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. then you get back to the middle. Mm -hmm. But that's, but going from one extreme to the other extreme feels really scary.
0: It does, especially with all the messaging about how dangerous and irresponsible and unhealthy eating a lot of food and gaining weight is. And Mm -hmm. that, I think that is a big reason why it's so hard for people to heal because everything else in our entire culture, our entire lives, every diet we've ever read, every wellness blogger we've ever followed, it is ingrained in us that eating a lot of food and gaining weight is bad.
1: Yeah. It's like the cardinal sin of existing. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that's not allowed. And yeah, you touched on, and I mentioned that a couple of the guys became chefs and they were really interested in food um because I so bring it back to myself as per um (laughs) I I really relate to that like I get that I ate a similar Mm -hmm. amount of calories I started a I started my social media by posting recipes
0: on food I had a food vlog yeah I had nine
1: <laughs> i wrote a recipe book i sold a little ebook of recipes that was called um breakfast eats and protein treats and it was all clean eating recipes my instagram mm. used to be called clean fit lifestyle oh wow and um yeah but that was my whole thing was like i posted not only and i want to talk about in the context of social media because not only did i share a lot of recipes i had to post everything i ate so everything I ate had to look Instagram perfection mm, and be very mm-hmm. presentable, mm-hmm. and I also had to, you know, show people what I was eating. It was like performative eating, right? right. Um, and I have kind of found in the like latter years, I firstly made a conscious decision not to post what I'm eating, like never doing what I eat in a day's again, and very rarely showing what I'm eating Mm -hmm. because I don't want anyone to think, oh, I need to eat like her to look like her. I I really want to break that cycle. But I've also noticed that like, yeah, like I enjoy cooking and stuff, but I'm not obsessed with it. Like I, you know, in lockdown, I've done a bit of baking. It's really nice occasionally, Mm -hmm. but you know, I used to always be looking up the menu at the restaurant and be like, oh, I need to go here and, you know, obsessing over all these different things and, being so excited, knowing exactly what was in my cupboards. And now I just feel a lot more relaxed and chilled about it. And I just wanted to know your thoughts on that.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, I have a very similar, a similar experience. I actually, so my my food blog very quickly became like a weird essay blog, which was a good move for me, but nobody read it. I didn't have a follow. It was like my friends that read it. Um, But I believed that I was a foodie. I considered going into food writing. I, I cooked so much. I baked so much, whatever, you know, you know, paleo treats, whatever was like appropriate for whatever diet I was on. I believed that I loved food.
1: Side note, have you seen, do you do TikTok at all?
0: I, I I'm on there I don't get okay. do it but I am but not. there's this
1: one trend of this woman she's called like keto something and she makes these keto treats and then she feeds them to people and everyone makes fun of the audio like the audio is used and people lip sync to it and or pretend <laughs> to be her and they do these crazed eyes and they're like try it it's got no sugar in it it's got it's incredible like it's a jelly but it's like not got any sugar in it and um she's really famous for doing that anyway she would be that kind of is a prime example to me of someone who's obsessed with cooking oh, yeah. the keto-friendly version, and then their whole existence is around
0: making. B- yeah, food. Make, bake. So on the day, this is the thing that I have this very, I have this very um, kind of like warbled memory of it. But on the day, on my 24th birthday, that day when I truly had that sh- total shift in perspective after binging on all of the paleo treats that I'd made for myself, my best friend was visiting me, and she was there, and I. I kept on offering her the food. I was like, I need these paleo cupcakes with no icing and less sugar. She's like... And she did, She was like, I'm um, okay. And I was like, okay. And I, I ate them all. I was like, okay, well, I'll just have one. And I, but I, like, I kept on making them and wanting her to eat it. And she's like, I'll just have this yogurt that I brought. Like, she was... So yes, like the I made these. You you, I think you'll love it. And like not understanding why (laughs) other people didn't think it was good. But so that so I definitely did that. But I had these years, years and years and years where I thought that I was eating like the French. Oh yes, I. I was like I. And again, I was, I believed that it was intuitive eating. I believed that it was just like snobby. Like I'm just a little bit snobby with food. And it was like, in my head, it was about clean eating, but it was French eating. You know? How did the French eat?
1: Just to clarify.
0: Well, that's a great, <laughs> this is a great question. <laughs> I
1: always thought they take long lunches and you're meant to just eat slowly and-
0: Slowly and pick like a bit. everything is dainty, right? Okay. So I read the book, French women don't get fat, which I again, do not endorse- <laughs> but I, at the time, I'm trying to think how old I was. I was, I was probably in college. I was probably 20 or 21. And I, I'd always, I, I, you know, I studied French in high school. Like I was obsessed with Amelie. Like I'd been to France a couple of times and I was like, these people are going to heal me. Like, this is what I need. And it was so aspirational too, because it was like, oh, we just, you know, we just like quality. It's, it's all about quality over quantity, right? quality over quantity they don't go to the gym apparently
1: that's not chic
0: not chic they only <laughs> go for walks in cute clothes but also it was this like 65 year old woman writing this book right so she also has who's lived in america for a very long time but her whole story was that she came to america gained all this weight went back to france and like developed and like refound her like french way of eating but it was very disordered it was very and maybe it isn't for her maybe maybe it's inherent for her maybe who knows but to me reading it and applying it it was all like oh i should only eat a half like and it was all, there there was like there were weird mind tricks but it was all about quality over quantity so i was able to believe that i loved Food and I loved quality food and I loved artisanal food. And I love, I mean, I, I still love restaurants. I think restaurants are my favorite, which is one of the things that's the hardest about this quarantine. Yeah. Oh, I just, it sucks. Like, can't do my favorite thing, but nobody can do their favorite thing during quarantine. Um, I, it was all about just, it was this weird, it was very, like, it was very extreme. Like it was a very extreme way to look at the world, but I don't even remember what. Oh, we're talking about being a foodie. Yeah, I believed that I was a foodie. And so I started this food blog thinking that I was going to like document the food that I ate and like talk about the restaurant. But I so quickly, I, didn't, I wasn't a photographer. I didn't have a, a good camera. I literally had a flip phone. You know, this is like 2009. And so I would like be in this dark restaurant in New York and like take a picture of my half eaten nachos and be like, what am I doing like what? I would like upload it and be like, this is a bad picture. So I better talk about the day. And so it became very clear that I loved writing, that I loved writing about like, like I liked a kind of like humorous take on whatever. Thank God. Cause that actually is what I now do and like what I want to do. So it actually all worked out eventually, but I, yeah, I, I really believed that I was a foodie and it was wild to go through the process of healing my relationship to food and be like, I, I want to eat, I want to eat food that I like. I want to eat, you know, enough when I'm hung like more than enough when I'm hungry, but I do not want to think about it. I do not want to, like, I just, I just don't care. And it's, right. it's a, it's like, it's wonderful because I mean, i like, I do miss, I miss sort of like the drama of, of like, oh my God, I, I want to eat that like a beautiful meal, you know, but I, I just don't care. Like I really, and it's so freeing. It <laughs> I never thought, never in a million years thought that I would not care about food.
1: And I genuinely believed I loved certain foods. Like there were certain bars I used to eat and certain recipes I used to make that I would never in a hundred million years make now, because I can have the the normal version, but I genuinely believe that they were better. And and it's so interesting seeing, speaking to my friends, (laughs) and they're like, yeah, you did think that, and (laughs) you used to make us eat them all, and (laughs) like my boyfriend um, on one of our, like when we first met, it was the end of drama school, and I was in my student house, I remember um, I made him protein pancakes, and he just didn't finish them and I was so offended I was like <laughs> trying to be chill but I was so offended because I was like they're incredible this is like some of my best work I've made right. you the most instagramable food I can possibly make right. you know like I don't get it um, <laughs> but he just wanted the real you know a normal pancake um, bless him And he, generally he tried to humour me but at that point he was like I can't do it <laughs> I can't do it <laughs> Um, so let's break down the bucket diet then you've had mm-hmm. this epiphany. Mm-hmm. Let's briefly explain your epiphany and kind of what you did. And then we'll go into like the book and okay. how it works out in there.
0: So the epiphany was that I needed to let myself eat as much food as I was hungry for, gain whatever weight my body needed to gain. And that I truly believed, and I, and it's because I'd been reading, about some paleo people who had gone so low carb that they, became, that they weren't able to get pregnant with their, the next kid that they wanted. It was like this one woman that I followed and then there were a couple more who I found through the comments there. And this was mind blowing to me because in my head, I was trying to heal my hormones, right? By going low carb. So the idea that going low carb could mess up your hormones, it, it, that was actually like the pre-epiphany before the epiphany. So I I had that awareness in my head and I knew that the woman had had to eat a lot of food and a lot of carbs in order to, and to sleep a lot and to sort of like give her body a break and like give her stress hormones a break and that she eventually was able to have another child. I wasn't trying to have a child at all, but I was trying to heal my body. And so this was like, that was huge for me. And that really was a big piece of me realizing that food is good and
1: Mm -hmm. carbs
0: are good for your fertility and your hormones and everything. Um, So because of that, I started researching and I started, I actually started reading. um, I read a book called Fat. So I I feel like I should actually know exactly. Hold on, Fat. So I think that one's by Marilyn Wan or Wan. Shoot, it's not coming out. I just want to make sure that I, okay, Marilyn Wan. Um, And then I read a book called Lessons from the Fatosphere. I knew that I needed to be okay with gaining weight. I knew I also wasn't fat, um, but I wanted—I really like wanted to change my perspective on bodies. And I knew that if I could just learn from as many people as I could, that that would be helpful. And I believe that from those books, i learned about Health at Every Size, and then I read Health at Every Size. And I remember reading that book. I'm feeling like I just wanted to cry of relief and I felt so vindicated because I already had made the decision to do this even if it wasn't good for my health because I was so miserable. I I felt like I had I you know I had orthorexia. I had this health perfectionism and I knew that part of my healing had to be letting go of that a little bit. So I was already going to do this and I was already going to let myself gain weight no matter what. But then reading that actually trying to control our weight isn't even good for our health anyway. I was like, oh my God, even better. So that started me having this completely new perspective on food, on carbs, on weight. And I started writing about it. A couple months later, I had this, I I had this, I was like frustrated with myself for overthinking what I was eating. And I had this like, fuck it. Like, I just need to, like all of these rules. I just... I'm so exhausted from them. And I had this, like, I just need to be on the fuck it diet because I, I cannot overthink anything. And I remember thinking, okay, that, and I already had this food blog, right. That nobody read. So I already was like, I want to have a blog to write about this for myself. And I had no, I mean, there was no part of me that thought that I would be an author of a book called the fuck a diet that we would be having this conversation right now, mm. that it would be my job. I had no idea, but I did know that I wanted to write about it because I loved writing. And so I bought the and I started writing about everything I was learning and everything I was applying to myself. And I had this really, really, really strong intuitive sense that it's what I needed to do. But then I was doing research that was actually corroborating this intuitive sense that I needed to do Oh, hello, Molly. Oh, we've got a Molly. Got a Molly. <laughs> Do you even understand that that's a person right there? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that eventually, or actually pretty quickly, had a life of its own. And I didn't, you know, it took years. I started, so I'm 32, 24. So I've been doing this for eight years. And it was years and years and years and years of me having full-time jobs and this just being a little side thing that I did and then going back to acting and still doing this and having periods of you know I didn't start the Instagram like maybe four years ago I started the Instagram and it didn't blow up until right before the book came out so I've been pretty like I've been doing this for a long time and I've had loyal readers and it's so funny when I have people who are like I've been following you since 2014. I'm like, that's so crazy because I did it. Like I only had, I only I had like a couple thousand readers, you know, and I would get yeah. emails from people and that's the thing that kept me going. But I was like, wow, this is really resonating with people. Oh my goodness, Molly.
1: You were probably writing for that person who you found. She's so cute. You were probably <laughs> writing for that person who you were like on the message boards for. I mean, yes. that yes. was like, and even if it's that like one other person, but that is who you, that would have exactly. been your like initial readership.
0: Exactly. And that was enough for me at the time, because again, I wasn't really thinking that it would become what it became. I was doing it because it was amazing accountability for myself. And I was amazed by the emails that I would get from people saying, Oh my God, I can't even believe it. Like it really is helping me and, and eating food really is helping my relationship with food. And so that was fueled to be like, okay, it's not just me it's other people too. And this is, this is something that I think I I had this strong sense that I couldn't believe it wasn't, um, more common knowledge, all of the stuff that I was learning about food and dieting. I just couldn't believe that the whole world was dieting. I had been dieting, but really nobody knew how bad it was for like, I I couldn't believe it. And so I felt like even if I only have, you know, However many people reading at a time, I didn't even really know. I wasn't doing analytics or like I wasn't being a businesswoman. I mean, I still don't. But <laughs> I, I had this strong sense that it was so important that somebody talk about it. Meanwhile, lots of people are talking about it, but I, I wasn't. I didn't have a community of those people, which is really. If you read my book, I don't mention the word diet. I don't mention the phrase diet culture once because I didn't have that as part of my lexicon because I wasn't reading other people who were yeah. writing about diet culture, which is really odd. It's really nice. I'm very thankful that it actually all lines up with what other people are saying too, but uh, it's only in the past two years that I've really started following a lot of other people who are writing about the same things. And it's amazing. It's amazing to be like, ah, oh, there are more it's like, it's like, fine. it's like, you know, being in a zombie apocalypse and finally finding a village of yes, <laughs>
1: it like, feels oh like God, that. There,
0: there are other people,
1: <laughs> but I also remember, like, I remember discovering what because I kind of had like a similar, like, you know, just disillusionment with what I was doing, and mm-hmm. just I just couldn't carry on, just like feeling bad about myself. I just couldn't do it any longer. And mm-hmm. I remember when I yeah heard the phrase dark coach, I was like, oh, that's what it's called. And like, right. I don't, I also I don't know about you, but I don't feel people have used that phrase um in like a more until mainstream sense until more recently like in the Very last two recent. years it's
0: cool to say it yes before ah. the, i would just say our culture like our culture teaches us this our society that. yeah. yes and yeah, that's, yeah, and yeah. that's what i said in the book and it's i mean it's resonant enough that people are like yeah our culture but now i mean i i'm writing a second book and i'm like talking about diet culture all the time but that wasn't like a phrase in my lexicon at all all of the years that i wrote about it so that's really interesting like just to to kind of like realize, and it's very odd because I really genuinely thought for so long that I was one of the only people who had this perspective just because I didn't, I wasn't on Instagram doing it. I didn't have a community of other people. And for a very, very long time until more recently, I believed that intuitive eating the book was the hunger fullness diet. I was wrong. I interpreted it that way
1: Yeah. very
0: quickly. But I also, I read, like I read a lot of Janine Roth around those times too. And a lot of, um, and then the French women don't get fat in my brain, I put them all together. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I mean, that's good, but it's not radical enough. Like that's, that was the sense that I had without going back to reread it. Obviously now I know differently and I, but people do twist intuitive eating. And a lot of people with, you know, big platforms and big readerships Think they're teaching intuitive eating, but it's really some hungerfulness diet or bastardized version of it. And that's what I was, you know, I wasn't following, following Evelyn and Elise at the time. I was following these other people who were doing this like pseudo intuitive eating. And so I was thinking those that's people what get it, is. it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, have you had a chance to speak to Evelyn or Elise yes. since?
0: Yes. Yes, yes. Did you
1: say like, I'm sorry for confusing it. But I did. I
0: did. I did. And I connected with her on Instagram we follow each other and then she actually was in Philadelphia for some um some conference and she wanted to meet Molly <laughs> so I, think I had-
1: she um I just think she seems like such a lovely person she lovely. will be on this podcast um in in a little bit i went, i can't remember the exact date and weeks but she will be on shortly because um, I think she has... I Imagine how frustrated you were six years ago. She wrote... They originally wrote in series music 25 years ago. That's amazing. She's probably... I mean, her demeanor seems so, like, just positive. Like, she has the best laugh if you listen to her speak. And I just think imagine being, you know, being able to have that sense of humor and for 25 years knowing that diets don't work and living in this culture.
0: I know. I know. Like, she's, a, she's definitely a special person. She's lovely. Yeah. 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 So I definitely did say, because she said, she's had people say, so what do you think about the fuck diet? And she has said, well, I haven't read it, but everyone who I know and work with who has read it says it's very much in line with intuitive eating. Though I know that in the book, I never mentioned the intuitive eating book because in my, I didn't, because in my head, I genuinely thought that it was the hunger fullness diet mm. and I didn't want to slam it. So I would slam pseudo intuitive eating or bastardized intuitive eating, which is exactly what I should be slamming. But I really do regret that I didn't just well, she wasn't on Instagram at the time. I know. <laughs> like, I didn't reread the book and say like, "Oh, I misinterpreted this and this and this and this and this." And to give, uh, I wish that I, you know, if w- whenever there's an updated version, I will amend that.
1: <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good to know. So let's get into it. So you break it down into four parts: the physical part, the emotional part, the mental part, the thriving part. Mm-hmm. So let's like chat through those parts. So what is the physical part? You. I love that you talk about rest within this, and Mm -hmm. I don't hear many conversations about this. In fact, I think I personally will benefit from hearing your perspective on rest. You have rest written on chalk behind you.
0: Oh my gosh. I know. I know. I know. Um, Um, I wrote that. I wrote that on on the chalkboard like four years ago when I was starting my two years of rest, which was like the more intense version of, and it wasn't actually physical rest that I was really going after. I was going after like, what are the beliefs and shoulds and pressures on myself that, that are like keeping me anxious. Mm. It was what my two years of rest was. But every day I look at that and I still love rest. Don't get me wrong. But even as I was like setting up the camera, I was like, oh, I keep wanting to change it to something else because people are like rest
1: Yeah. Um, So what, how does rest apply in the fuck it diet? How does it apply to that healing process?
0: So, so much of the physical part, the physical part of the book and the physical part of healing is about taking care of our physical needs. So enough food and enough food to do the refeeding part and enough rest. And I just remember, I remember for myself when, especially when I was dieting, the, and because I do think that it's two sides of the same coin coin, you know, if you're not eating enough, your body's going to get run down, your body's going to have to, you know, live on adrenaline, essentially, if you're not eating enough food. And if you're over exercising, it's going to do the same thing, you don't have enough fuel for how much output. So eating enough and resting really is a part of it. And especially in the beginning, you know, it will probably feel more extreme. A lot of people feel really, really tired at the beginning of this. And it is the phase of the body being like, great, let's take a chance, do a little reboot, (laughs) take a little rest. But I will never forget um, sitting, like it was probably in college. I was sitting in a park in, in Washington Square Park in New York, beautiful. I sat down and I was looking at all the other people sitting on benches and they were so relaxed. And I remember thinking, I don't understand how people can just sit on a park bench. Like if I'm outside and I'm here in this park, I should be exercising. Like I, I, I couldn't let myself, I was never allowed to relax and rest in my head it was always a time that i should i should be doing something i should be moving i if i'm not if i'm sitting if i'm not exercising then i'm you know i'm wasting time i'm i'm not thin enough or healthy enough to to let myself relax so i had to do a big reversal um, but the truth is we need rest and time to to chill and breathing in order to get into to get out of a fight, fight or flight state that like survival crisis state that helps us stay alive, but we don't want to live in it. And so many of us are living in it. I lived in it for 10 years, for like more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. I was just like, everything was high stakes. Everything was stressful to me. Everything was a big deal. I was never allowed to relax. I was never allowed to just eat. And really we thrive And talk about the thriving part. We'll get there too. But we thrive in the parasympathetic. Some people call it the rest-digest mode. Mm -hmm. Some people call it the feed and breed mode. That is where we are meant to live most of our lives. And then the fight or flight is meant to kick in in times of crisis. But our times of crisis, you know, my time of crisis was like constant. I just lived there, and that just on like a physical level that really, really, really runs down your body. And it can make you chronically ill. It can make you chronically tired. It can make, you can lower your immune system. And so just on like a restorative level, we need food and we need, we need to rest and we need to let ourselves sleep, but even more than sleep, it's, it's not just sleep. Yes. Sleep is amazing and we need sleep, but it's like, can I let myself exist in a more restful state? Can I let myself have a slightly, even just slightly more restful life? And so in the book, there's the second tool is the 10 minute lie down. And like, even if people can't wrap their heads around, like, what does rest look like? Well, what would a more restful state look like for me? If we can just let ourselves take a 10 minute break of lying down and there is no, there's no goal. There's no goal for the lie down. There's nothing, nothing that needs to happen. You just need to let yourself take a little break. And it's when people, can't let themselves take that break, that that's information too. Like what is so important in our lives that we don't think we're allowed to lie down for five or 10 minutes? Um, Um,
1: And I did the 10 minutes of rest today. I did it today because I was like, I... I need to learn to be in life like that's the thing I need to work on is just being able to be and so you know where I've channeled energy into food and exercise before I'll now channel it into being productive or right. get, getting a job done around the house or mm-hmm. you know anything like I think that's part of being a millennial because mm-hmm. I think we live in a productivity hustle culture mm-hmm. of like on the grind 24 7 sleep is like for losers, and if you want to <laughs> succeed, right, right, if you want to yeah. succeed, you've got to be making the most every single minute of every single day.
0: Right. And
1: I never related to meditating. I yeah. can't get my head around it. We spoke as we were recording. Like I don't like to do things that I feel like <laughs> everyone tells me I should do. People tell me I should meditate, and that's like too. That feels too extreme for me. It's not But a 10-minute <laughs> lie down where yeah. I can, like, it's a sunny day in London today, and I just went on, on my balcony and mm-hmm. just lay outside for 10 minutes in the sunshine, and I was like, I can do that. And actually, yes. I ended up thinking about my breathing mm-hmm. and things like that, but with no, there was no, like, right, you must go without there, and you have to breathe right. for four counts in and right. breathe for four counts right. out, and it was, like, just, just chilling
0: for Chill. 10 minutes. I call it a meditation light because, really, what you're doing is you're taking a little time out and in that time out, you, you have the space to maybe examine your thoughts, maybe breathe a little deeper, or maybe not. Maybe you're just taking a 10 minute time out. But I, I think, I think it's effective in the same way that a meditation is that I often lie there and I, I have a realization. I'm like, ah, that's what I need. Like, I really, I do find it like a really nice, time for just stillness, just a little bit of stillness, but also there's no expectation on it. It doesn't have to be stillness. You can lie there and be like, mm, you know, there's no there's no right or wrong. And that's what people say about meditation too. But like I don't want to sit. I want to lie down.
1: Yeah. Same. <laughs> I think that's also what was appealing. Like I don't want to have to sit up with my <laughs> like my straight back. Exactly, and exactly. I wanna just I just want to chill. And so you still do the 10 minutes of rest now.
0: I do, though I will say Getting this dog who I love, I love you more than anything in the world. (laughs) I felt like I had a baby. Like I, all of my self-care things went out the window for like a year, like all of, and it was right when I was finishing the book and when the book came out. So I had used all of the things that are in the book. I used it and they were my solve and they helped me. And they, I was, I'm not giving any advice that I did not take hardcore for years and years and years and years, but it was so strange that right when the book came out, I was like, I'm not doing any of my like things that were so good for me because of this terror, this like little, (laughs) little terror. But now, now I do. Now I'm able to be like, okay, she's, there's no reason why I couldn't have even done it then. But just something about having a little, dog that was just trying to destroy everything and
1: and has that been a criticism from some people who have said like I've got young children I couldn't possibly take 10 minutes for myself I don't I got I can't rest you know I've got families and whatever
0: whatever I was saying about her about I don't have the time was wrong and I knew it I was like I have like I'm just I'm just now in this weird different state and really what I needed to be doing was taking a 10 minute, was saying, okay, Molly, you stay down here. I'm going to go upstairs and do my 10 minute lie down. But I wasn't. And so, and the times that I would, I'd be like, oh, remember this? Like, there's no reason why you can't. And there are are so many people who have said, oh my God, I'm a mom and I never get to lie down. And I can't tell you how amazing the the 10 minutes, like the 10 minutes, it gives me me energy. It gives me like, it's a reset. I'm able to come back and be be calmer and nicer with my children so and they're able to be you know like I'm mommy's lying down for 10 minutes you know you can be right there but it's it's definitely possible that's the thing and even if it's three minutes like even if it's just so quick it's totally possible it really really is totally possible and the excuses that we sometimes (laughs) make aren't necessarily you know like so I definitely it's very weird that like I my whole self-care life was turned upside down when I got a puppy. Is that, did that have to be the way? No, but I was like, ah, like, this is, I don't know. I, I, I guess we sometimes need to learn the same lesson over and over and over again. Yeah, mood. we do.
1: Especially <laughs> when it comes to rest, because I just, yeah, like, I think when we're, when I've, you know, looked into health, that resides and intuitive eating and all that stuff, like, It's so great, but I think this rest and the next part, the emotional part, Mm -hmm. I just hadn't heard anyone put it in the way that you put it. And I was like, that is so part of what I'm experiencing. And yes, we need to talk about this. So let's talk about the emotional part Mm -hmm. because you talk about ways in which we distract ourselves. And I think, you know, even for the sense of like distracting ourselves from rest, the ways we distract ourselves, keep ourselves busy, numbing ourselves to things, um, And I've been talking about this a lot, just on social media, just because of my own kind of therapy journey of like, oh, everything I was doing was distracting myself from actually feeling my feelings. And what are my feelings? And, you know, how do I even feel them? Um, And yeah, I just, I wanna know, how that experience was for you, and also what the implications are of suppressing emotion, of not allowing yourself to feel emotion. What are the physical and emotional implications?
0: Mm-hmm. So, the physical, the, I think there's a big parallel between suppressing and ignoring and denying our emotions and suppressing and ignoring and denying our hunger. Oh, where'd you go? Oh, no. Am I no, not?
1: No,
0: no, no. It's
1: good. You're there. You're there. Okay. Save it again.
0: Okay. Um, I think there's a huge parallel between suppressing, ignoring, and denying our emotions and suppressing, ignoring, and denying our hunger. And in both cases, we think there's something wrong with it. We think there's something wrong with having an emotion or something wrong with being hungry. And then if we suppress it, it's just going to go away and we become superhuman and we're perfect and we're amazing and we can be really proud of ourselves. But it will always come it will always come back up with a vengeance essentially. Yeah. So if you try and su- suppress emotions, they will make themselves known probably when you really don't want them to. Um and if you suppress hunger, the same thing is going to happen. So that was interestingly something that I um I, before the fuck a diet, I thought that my problem was emotional eating. So I did all of this work to feel all of my emotions. I'm going to feel all of my emotions and then I won't feel the need to overeat ever. And that was incorrect because I was not addressing the bigger piece, which was the actual physical hunger and restriction and what dieting and obsessing over food does to your relationship with food. However, I did a lot of emotional work sort of before the fuck it diet. Of course, there was way more to do and there will always be more to do, but I had this perspective on feeling emotions. And I also, I had so much audition anxiety um, that when I went when I tried acting again, like my, my last attempt in New York before I moved to Philadelphia, I took all of these audition anxiety classes. And one of them that really resonated with me was that you're trying to suppress your anxiety. You're trying to suppress sort of the nervousness and excitement. And we think that that is going to help us on auditions, but inherently that makes us actually not embodied because in order to not feel, you have to jump up into your head and your head is cruel so cruel. And so this sort of perspective, and I already, I was already very interested in how can I feel all my emotions so I heal my relationship with food. That was pre-understanding of diet culture, fuck a diet, everything. Um, But this was a fascinating, like this was genuinely a fascinating perspective for me. And also the perspective that emotions are energy and the suppressing of them actually just... It it just it backfires, and that's why we're shaky because there's all this like pent up energy that we're not even processing, we're not even feeling. So that was huge for me. And then eventually, when I learned sort of about um, there, I I sort of I have sort of like a woo woo bent, and I have a a good friend who actually was a nutritionist, but she became sort of more of an energy worker, and she talks so much about grounding and being in our bodies and how none of us none of us in this day and age are in our bodies. We just, we we're afraid of it. We don't like our bodies. We're afraid of emotion. Mm. We, um, it's uncomfortable for us. There's trauma lives in our bodies. Um, emotion live in our bodies and we live in our, in our brains. And I started, I started writing about that and hearing from people with more extreme eating disorders, I think than I ever had, but a lot of people um, with anorexia would actually write back and say, like, I can't even, I can't even visualize, because I would do these like visualizations, like visual, like feel your breath coming into your body. Like imagine sort of like, like, how can we feel our bodies and, you know, re, become reembodied? And a lot of people with very extreme um, restriction literally could not even imagine it. Like couldn't even imagine feeling below their neck. And that was like a light bulb for me of oh oh <laughs> that 's what we 're doing yeah that is so much that is one big, big, big piece of the puzzle of what we are doing when we are trying to be smaller and to take up less space and to um, to end to not have to feel the discomfort that comes along with being a human because being a human is hard and messy and painful. And we're afraid that if we kind of give in to that, that it will take over and ruin our lives, right? In whatever ways we have we have a million different stories of how it could ruin our lives. But really what we need and deserve is to come back into our bodies, which is our this this is our home, you know, our bodies are mm-hmm. our home to process what wants to be processed, the emotions that maybe are from 20 years ago. Um because they're they're really uncomfortable, but the, it is a very similar thing to hunger in that when you begin to allow them, it it does not it does not um, have the power over you that it actually does when you're trying to push it away. So that was a big piece for me.
1: Yeah, and I've had this realization recently that a lot of my clean eating phase and a lot of my reasons for adding so much restriction into my life was because I thought it was a gut health issue. Mm -hmm. And my Mm -hmm. thing was all about gut health, gut health, Mm -hmm. gut health. And, um, I think I was, I know I had, certain traumatic events happen. I'd lost my dad when I was like 17. And then I'd gone to Mm -hmm. drama school. And that was a very stressful environment. And I Mm -hmm. think my I think the gut issues were my body just like, whoa, there's so much going on here. And you're not acknowledging any of it. And I tried to cure it with food, because that's what all the blogs told me to do. Like Mm -hmm. the clean eating blogs, the wellness bloggers were like, cut out sugar, cut out refined, you know, anything processed, and that will help your gut that's what worked for me I'll do it too and it's only in kind of therapy now understanding how also like you said your body holds on to trauma holds on to pain Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that how much of that is actually emotional and it's not it's not um a food thing and actually I eat everything now and and uh, interestingly enough the, the way it clicked for me was like I went on holiday and I had this amazing holiday with my boyfriend and we were so chilled and it was the first time I chilled in my adult life and I was eating gluten and I was like, mm-hmm. it's having no effect on my body. Like right. I'm totally fine. Right. So I'm not celiac. I'm not, I don't have, this is, this is a, and I, this is a stress thing. But I was like, so mm-hmm. when I'm stressed, I still can't eat gluten. And, you know, it took a few years of me to be like, right. Tally, you made that up because, right. you know, that, that was something you did. It's fulfilling prophecy in this weird yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, also there's the whole psychology of like telling yourself this food's going to bloat you this food's bad this food's unhealthy Mm -hmm. and then the reaction that has on your tummy it like explodes up I mean I don't know if you see on social media but there's so much chat about bloating and gut health and Mm -hmm. so many issues around it and I think they think there's a couple of things going on I think there's the maybe they initially started because of suppressed emotion things that need to be felt in the body Mm -hmm. restriction not feeding Mm -hmm. yourself enough food to keep you Mm -hmm. going um, and then getting in the vicious cycle of demonizing mm-hmm. foods and telling yep. yourself that and they're being
0: afraid. I mean, you. just a stress response can, can make you, oh, can make you feel like you can't digest the food. I mean, that, yeah. that, that happens. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's a huge piece. And then also when you were talking, I was, I was actually thinking about how exercise can be so grounding. It's like a, it, exercise is absolutely a way to become embodied mm-hmm. and to be in your body. And actually, that friend that I have that kind of changed my mind about the idea of how we're all avoiding being in our bodies, she used to be a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. And she said, I didn't know, but exercising was the only time. And she said, and she was exercising for, you know, for completely aesthetic reasons in so many ways, but also it was the only time that she felt grounded and embodied in her body. And so that was the thing that she was also chasing, but didn't realize that she could have it while exercising, but also have it in other ways. But I would also argue that there are a lot, there is a way to exercise where you are distracting and running away from the way that you feel. And that it's, it's a coping mechanism to not feel. Yeah. And that there are ways to exercise that where it's, it is about, being in your body
1: which is what i advocate for an in intuitive movement and how i want people to get to with the kind of process in train happy as well as like i want you to get to a point where you're connected to your body and you're working with your body and you are all it's all connected and flowing mm-hmm. and um a couple of things they say that yoga is one of the best things yoga has just as good results as the fodmap diet in healing Gut wow. health because of the breath work and the embodiment, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. so interesting. It's
0: amazing. Yeah.
1: And secondly, um, yeah, my therapist put it once um, yeah, lots of people are just running away from feeling stuff. They're just, it's just, literally it's, it's, this, it's literally running <laughs> literally away. It's literally running away. And yeah. the escapism of actually acknowledging thoughts right. and feelings. And I think there's only so far you can go with that until you're physically burnt out. And yes you know, the way you can get burnt out with food, you can get burnt out with exercise, at the end of the day, we're going to have to face those issues. So yes. um, yeah, what are, how do you, what kind of tools are you giving to help us feel our emotions? Um, and what do you recommend?
0: So I recommend therapy very much. Yeah, ditto, <laughs> ditto. Yes, but also just, I mean, just the, the third tool in the book is called breathe and feel. And I purposely made it that Basic. All of the there are five tools in the book, and for the most part, they are so basic and rudimentary that I would have thought many, many years ago that they were pointless and like, okay, I'm not gonna do that, you know. But really the the most basic things are the things that we need to get back to. Mm -hmm. The just just being aware of breathing and feeling basic sensations in our body is something that sounds so simple but we never do it. Mm-hmm. We we never I mean in all of the years of yoga that I took for the wrong reasons by the yeah. way in all the years listening to them talk about breathing and feeling I I didn't understand why. I didn't get it and I and I wasn't doing it. I wasn't. So even just having the perspective shift of look breathing helps us feel And it helps us slow down, and it helps us get back into our bodies. And so many of us don't even feel what it feels like. What does our stomach feel like? Like what does it feel like
1: to yeah to release your tummy? Uh
0: Like how uh often
1: are you just like holding in? Like I just I just kind of like as you're saying that I was like you know just letting my feeling myself was up here. So I was like releasing the tension and just Uh just letting yourself relax your stomach and you're not holding it in or yeah that that feels revolutionary
0: yeah and it's so simple and we're all afraid of it really mm-hmm. so it, it's as basic as that so that it's the breathe and feel and in the and so many people have said okay well so you're, this is in the emotional section but do you want me to feel my emotions or do you want me to feel my body and the answer is so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and getting more, cause we really do have a resistance to it because it feels so uncomfortable. And then we have this association with it, that it means something and the, the discomfort's going to last forever. And it, it's tied to memory and it's tied to all this stuff. So yes, I know Molly, I know. Don't worry. Um, but just, you know, just getting used to feeling your physical body is is, get, is getting used to and sort of upping your tolerance for feeling anything and feeling yeah. emotion. So it, it does, it's all connected.
1: And I talk about so much with exercise about how we use certain things to distract us, whether that's a fitness watch um, as a massive distraction or, you know, focusing on pushing past the point of pain and discomfort to you know burn x amount of calories right. um all of those things are ways in which we um you know distance ourselves further from being within our bodies and being present within our bodies and a simple thing like i get a lot of messages going tally i've read your book or i'm interested in what you're doing and i i took my fitness watch off today i just i just i did the same run without the watch and it was mm-hmm. like a whole different experience yeah and that always um that's like such a small relatively small little thing But with the idea that everything you have to do has to be validated and has to be, um, have a numerical value, I think is so entrenched in diet culture. And I think it's so links to that thing. Um, And another thing, which I want to pose to people listening, and I must write about this because I think about it a lot. I think we need to be able to exercise as well as in the way that I now eat without posting about it. I think we need to exercise without telling anyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've had, this is what I do at the moment. I don't, I rarely say when I'm doing what I'm doing for me because I need that to be for me and intrinsically for me, and not mm-hmm. for other people's approval, mm-hmm. and not for not for you know social media gratification. And yeah. um, I think there needs to be more of a conversation about that because I think it relates to food and exercise, whether it's performative exercise or performative eating.
0: I totally agree, I do, and I've always had this sense as long as I've been writing the Fuck It Diet that me talking about what I ate is helps nobody mm-hmm. like that, that, because I know exactly what my brain would have done with it. If I were on the other end, I would have, I would have thought about it and been like, Oh, what does that mean about what I like me posting about what, what I'm eating is not helpful. And people want me to, they're like, do you ever, it's really helpful to see what intuitive eaters eat. I, I, I understand that. I understand that, but it doesn't feel right for me to post about what I eat. It just doesn't. Yeah.
1: And I think, and I, you know, I think uh, like as someone who used to make like what I've eaten a day videos on YouTube and all that kind of stuff, um, I think it's really hard as well because I, I see that there's kind of people on their healing journey and they're not ready to let go of that yet. I think they're, you know, still wanting to like document it in some manner yes. and let people know. And I think um, I, Totally get that because there's like this halfway where your brain's like, but people like me because I tell them what I eat and that's part of my identity now and also but I also know that like everyone needs to eat different amounts and everyone has different needs and you know, what mm-hmm. I eat is not what you need to eat. And I think there's that kind of like cognitive dissonance of
0: like, ah, what? The-? I know. Oh, I understand. You I, know? Totally, I totally, and, and I think that I actually sometimes really like seeing some people post, like some um, intuitive eating registered dietitians who post, you know, their very normal meal to be like, this is what it can look like. I I don't think that there's anything inherently yeah. harmful about that. I just know for whatever reason that if I started doing that, that's not, it doesn't work with what I'm trying mm. to say. I just, I just have this sense. Um, so yeah. And, and I think that, that the performative nature of it too is so interesting to, to, really figure out when are we doing things? I mean, you can apply that to everything. Why, why oh. do I talk? Why do I sometimes go on stories and talk about stuff? You know, like, you know, I think that's fine, but is what is the why do we do what we do that's always the question why are we doing well we
1: my personality type is entertainer so I know why I do a lot of things yeah because I'm a natural it's performer <laughs> <Me too. laughs> so let's talk about that mental part um mm-hmm. one thing you touched on because I know it's a bit big than this but one thing you touched on that we kind of spoke about earlier was that identity bit about how you know, being the fit one, being the healthy one, being the paleo one, or being that person is Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, in the office, you're the one who comes in with your food and Tupperware every day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what, uh, how do we work through that in the mental part?
0: So I think that at, at the root of so much of what we're doing with dieting and micromanaging our bodies, and Everything, really. There are so many subconscious beliefs. And as I say in the book, shoulds, which are also beliefs. Um, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. I shouldn't be doing this. Um, so for instance, with the, the, this feeling that I can't let go of my identity, which is huge. If you have an identity that makes you feel safe and it sort of is like your, your world, letting go of that is is not easy. It's a huge that's a huge change. But I would but with anything I would say, okay, let's identify what the beliefs that we probably aren't fully aware of are underneath it of that. What is the fear? What are the beliefs? Maybe it's something like if I am not the fit and healthy one, then I'm not special. There's always like some deep, you know, this is the thing that makes me worthy or worthwhile or likable or important and safe. There are beliefs underneath the thing that are coping mechanisms that continue to run the show unless we get some awareness around them. So I think that the first and sometimes only thing we need to do is just begin to have more awareness around the way our brains work, the way our subconscious is working and what are the beliefs that we are operating under that we have no idea we're operating under and we all have them. We Mm -hmm. all have them. And even if you work through so many of them, there are still more. (laughs) They're, They're always, you know, like, I think that that's part of like our life's work is getting, untangling ourselves from, and a lot of it is cultural and societal and things that we've taken on that we may not even be aware that we've taken on. But a lot of the things around like what our identity is, well, what are our beliefs about how this identity is is helping us or keeping us safe or, or, or going to lead to something. Um, so I think that that's a huge piece beginning to just identify um, our subconscious beliefs and even just having that separation and being able to see them and notice them, I think is a huge, huge, huge step
1: and would you say beliefs are so in my case perhaps for me in the past it's been like I need to be thin to be accepted in the fitness industry I need Mm -hmm. that to be good Mm -hmm. at my job um I need to be you know thin to be attractive to um Mm -hmm. be a likable person Mm -hmm. um you know I'm not allowed to be past a certain size because you know then I've gone too far um you know all these types of things would you especially around this concept of our bodies and diet culture, those might be some people's
0: beliefs. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I even think that, like, a lot of people will say, well, what about the belief that people are judging me? I know for a fact that people are judging me because they've ju- they have, like, openly judged me before. And I think, you know, so many of our beliefs are fully untrue. A lot of our subconscious beliefs are just untrue and and we don't have awareness over it and having awareness is really helpful to untangle. Is this Mm -hmm. true? Is this not? And being able to, even when we begin to panic to say, okay, why am I panicking? What's the belief? Can I kind of have that separation from it? But in the case of say someone saying, what about the belief that people are judging me even still unexamined that belief is going to have so much more power and you're going to apply it to everyone. Whereas not everyone is judging you. There are people, you know, like this is just an example, of course, Mm -hmm. but um, if you have the belief that people are judging me, judging you, then the subconscious belief and subconscious beliefs are able to bleed in, you know, to everything that we think and create like a lens through which we see the world essentially. So if that's your belief and you don't have any awareness around it or any critical thinking around it, you will apply it to everyone. And that will ramp up your anxiety even more. And you'll be extra self-conscious because everyone is judging you because a handful of people have been assholes, you know? Mm. So even if there's truth to a belief, it's really important, I think, for us to have awareness around it and to be able to say, okay, yeah, some people are judging me. And and but that doesn't mean that everybody is. And it also doesn't mean that I want to live in in a constant state of of kind of preemptively being anxious about it. So I think that having an awareness around the way our brains work and, and then doing the next, the next of, oh, how is that affecting me? How is that affecting my behavior, my thoughts, the way I treat myself, my anxiety and all of this? I mean, it's connected to so much. It's connected to so much of the way we feel and the way we act. And without awareness, nothing's ever gonna change. You know, we're gonna get a new coping mechanism to to help with that and think that we've healed, but really mm. you know, we we're just
1: and I think this is like you know if you're lucky enough I think to you know have access to therapy and stuff this is the kind of stuff you that's like great to work on in those situations um and you know I also think in your book you give kind of like tools and things for people who don't necessarily have that option and they can Mm -hmm. kind of work on stuff on their own which I think is awesome so let's um because we have like we have gone there and I'm we really have. happy about it. We've gone there. <laughs> Let's get to the thriving part. Um, talk us through the thriving part because this is ultimately where we all
0: want to be, right? So yes, ideally we can do a lot of work on, for me, it was such an, it was such a fixation that it was my whole world, you know, mm. <clears throat> focusing on food, focusing on weight. It was all I thought about. I didn't think about anything else. So getting through that and, and not having it take up so much space in my life, I was able to ask the question. And honestly, this is a question that scares a lot of people because they don't know the answer or they make it super high stakes. Who am I? And what do I care about? And what do I want to spend my time focusing on or thinking about or doing or trying? And I would say that anytime you hear that question and you start to panic, we're making the stakes too high, right? There's no, and that's, that's a piece of it. We, we constantly are going around thinking that we have to be so special and impressive and, and, and everything we do has to be worthwhile and um, lead to something. And I think that that was a super destructive way to operate. And actually I I talk about this a little bit in the fuck a diet and I talk about it a lot in other places, but the book, the artist's way for me was something that I read right at the beginning of my own fuck a diet. And it's really kind of wild to me how parallel it, it was to my journey with food and body, because it was all about creativity and how hard we are on ourselves and how perfectionistic we get about any sort of creative endeavor And how can we bring play and fun and lower stakes and childlike silliness and wonder into creativity, but then also into our lives? And I feel like an easier, more casual, less high stakes, you're allowed to be messy, you're allowed to be imperfect, you're allowed to try things and have it not work out. Um, All of those things have been so helpful for me to, to sort of be the energy with which, with which I try to figure out what I enjoy in Mm -hmm. my life. And then all of my creative endeavors, including the fuck diet and including everything else, um, only were able to happen because I had that shift in perspective and because my mind wasn't taken up with thoughts about food and body anymore. Yes, Enjoyment. And like, do we let ourselves relax? Do we let ourselves go out and have dinner with our friends and just relax and not have everything be this, you know, and we're talking about control issues and perfectionism here, but when we are living in this extremist state, which so many of us do with diets and exercise and and body obsession, we are not thriving. Mm-hmm. We are not, there's no, there's no chance, you know? So once you eliminate that, there might be other things that we have to work through, of course, but what do we want our lives to be? Like what and and what energy do we want to live our lives with too? So I feel like this is it's such a small part of the book because it's really like, okay, now now let's live. But it, it can take so many forms. And I think it is our our life journey then, you know. I don't Absolutely. think there's like now we're thriving. Like, good yeah. job, now you're thriving. It's more like, okay, now you have an opportunity to live a little bit more and what might that look like
1: and yeah I totally relate to that in the sense of I've written in my own book this book wouldn't exist five years ago because I just didn't have the headspace to write it like exactly didn't have any understanding didn't didn't um have any capacity to take on any information outside of me my body and I was looking so inward and I think thriving is and how I feel about it is about being able to suddenly look outward yes. and realize you're not the center of the universe and actually you're part of it. Yes. And how can you contribute to that? But also like, how can you have fun in that?
0: So and true. And I think,
1: yeah, I love it.
0: I was, I'm writing my second book now and it's really about my, like a little bit more of a story of my relationship with food and diets and extremist thinking and self-help and all this stuff. And there's... Like in writing it, <laughs> like one of the things that I wrote is, wow, I really, really, really focused on myself a lot. Like it was all about how can I heal? How can I be more beautiful and perfect? And even all of my, even all of my like spiritual self help things were like, there was an ulterior motive of like, I will be calm and beautiful. Like that was like <laughs> the goal. It was like, I'm gonna heal my body and my like soul so I can be a
1: goddess <laughs>
0: uh, yeah like it was literally like that was so yeah not healthy and I or think happy.
1: yeah and I think just in general there's just so much you can find so much meaning in you know like I said helping other people and just being aware of like circumstances that other people are going through and mm-hmm. you know recognizing you might have it better or worse but just being aware of your context within the world and I just yes really, like I said, just really did have that for a long time. Just really, it was like me and me alone. Yes.
0: Me and my journey to become hotter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, Caroline, this has been literally epic. Um, (laughs) but I, I love a long podcast. I'm hoping everyone else is going to love it too. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you today. I just, um, I love your work and i thoroughly really recommend everyone to read the It diet but where can people find you and find out more about the book and this whole process
0: you can find me at thefucketdiet.com i have some freebies for new people i have um if you've read the book i have resources for people who've read the book and you can also find me on instagram at diet. and that's that's where you can find everything
1: amazing um it's been a pleasure thank you so much and thank you molly for making the best <laughs> guest appearance ever Um, anyone watching on YouTube is going to just be dying over how cute she is Um, we're not allowed to have dogs where we live so we're not allowed to have any pets I know we didn't realise that um, we're probably going to be here a while, so I'm just a bit gutted. But, I know, um, but you
0: know, one day you'll have a dog and it'll be really hard. <laughs>
1: yeah, but I'll, exactly. make, I'll be sure of having that 10 minutes rest. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. Kelly, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Oh,
1: thank you. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you did like it, remember to tag us at Train Happy Podcast and use the hashtag Train Happy Podcast. And I'll see you next week. Bye.